is Leighton Woodhouse. I'm with Public, um, and we have Rui Teixeira, um, who is the author, uh, Once Upon a Time, of um, the, Emerging, the Emerging Democratic Majority, which, Rui, you can correct me if you think otherwise, but I, I, I think it's fair to say, was a book that was very empirically based, but also set the tone for a sort of a uh, a spirit of triumphalism within the Democratic Party that mm-hmm. the demographic wind was at the, I mean, this was the argument of the book was that the demographic wind was at the Democrats back mm-hmm. um, and uh, the emerging sort of coalition of, of uh, working class people of color and professionals, um, majority white, but uh, of all races, were formed a coalition that was going to be this sort of enduring majority for the Democrats. And that did come to pass. Um, with the Obama coalition. But since then, things have changed. And if you were to write a book today, it might be entitled, I don't know, The Declining Democratic Majority or well, The Emerging we, Republican we, Majority. We, we did write a book. I mean, that book was with John mm-hmm. Judas. And I have mm-hmm. a new book coming out with John Judas in November of this year mm-hmm. called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soul mm-hmm. of the Party in the Age of Extremes. So that is our exactly a different book that takes off from where the emerging democratic majority started, as it were, it really tries so, to explain how our politics evolved in the way they, they have since that time. So obviously I haven't had a chance to read the book yet since it's not out, but can you just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming it's probably, um, uh, it's probably in line with what you've been writing about on Substack. Um, Correct. Can you just lay out sort of what the broad thesis is of the book? Well, it's always hard to crystallize an entire book into you know, a few words, but uh, maybe I'll take off from the basically the fact we have basically two sections in the book. One is called the Great Divide and the other is called Cultural Radicalism. So in the first part of the book, we talk about the Great Divide that's taken place in the United States between, uh, you know, working class and college educated people in general, but in particular, how that has affected a lot of different regions of the country, uh, the so-called left behind areas and how Democrats were over time became associated with economic policies and a general attitude uh, that suggested to a lot of these working class people that Democrats neither understood their lives nor cared particularly about them and were complicit in a series of trade and other economic policies that actually were were hurting them. So Mm -hmm. the the sort of presumption that the Democrats were the party that was for the working class really decayed drastically over time, particularly. And did, did this start voters. like, did this start under Clinton, would you say, earlier well, it starts than that? earlier than that. starts in the 70s, Jimmy really, Carter. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, where um, uh, the Democrats start losing voters on uh, some cultural and civil rights issues, but it really becomes reinforced by uh, the economic changes that were taking place in the country and the policies that Democrats had or failed to have to do something about that. Uh, one interesting little data point I, I just encountered the other day, I put in a piece that should be coming out in the Post. Prior to 1980, the Democrats averaged a 17-point lead on which party can be trusted to keep the country prosperous. Mm-hmm. After 1980, the Republicans have a small but tangible advantage of two points. And in the last two uh, readings of that particular Gallup question, uh, Republicans are favored about 10 points on the issue. So that's a huge change. The Democrats became viewed as not as being bad economic managers for the working class. Um, mm-hmm. So the second part of the book, though, is about cultural radicalism, which uh, discusses the ways in which the Democratic Party during uh, this century, and particularly in the teens and, and the 20s, has become associated with 
a series of positions on race, on immigration, on gender and gender ideology, and even on climate, which we would argue is also a cultural issue that mm -hmm. takes them out of the mainstream of, of working class voters and that have really mm -hmm. come to define the Democratic Party and its brand, a sort of unwavering and increasingly radical commitment to a series of propositions about American society and what needs to be done with it that are, in fact, not at all, you know, not of interest to most working class mm -hmm. voters. So you put those so, together and that's why we're wondering where have all the Democrats gone? Because mm -hmm. they don't seem to be the Democrats we used to know. So I want to I want to go into later on um, what how much we know about what the historical causes were of this um, of this realignment. But um, can you just mm -hmm. um, describe you've done a lot of uh, a great interpret uh, interpreting of poll polling data to show uh, sort of um, the texture of what's been happening among mm -hmm. uh, Latino voters uh, black voters, Asian voters, and working, and of course, white working class voters, and essentially working class voters of a, of a whole of every race. Um, can you just describe some of what we've seen in terms of the fall off from cycle sure, to cycle? That, that's a, that's an important part of our story. Is that initially when the Democrats were losing working class voters, it was generally thought to be a phenomenon exclusively of the white working class, though. Uh, you know, the fact that it was just of the white working class didn't mean it was, wasn't a working class phenomenon. It didn't mean it wasn't really important because one thing we really talked about in the emerging democratic majority and got completely lost in the discussion of the book and, as you say, the sort of triumphalist stance Democrats adopted partially influenced by it was uh, we always argued that based on empirical realities and indeed the Democrats' historic commitment as a party of the working class, they needed to retain a strong core of white working class support. They couldn't afford to lose too many votes in that demographic uh, because otherwise, given how large this group was, particularly in a lot of key states, that would really undermine the political arithmetic, which seemed to be um, turning in their favor. And of course, that, that turned out to be true in spades over the course of the 2000s. And you really have the cut point of 2016, where not only did the Democrats lose another tranche of white working class votes, but it was enough to put Donald Trump in the White House. Uh, and it's really there that I think the madness, in a sense, really begins, because this was just like um, an event that Democrats had a lot of trouble processing. They couldn't see it as anything other than uh, the uprising of racist, reactionary people in left behind areas who just didn't quite get it about where the country was, was, uh, was going and disliked brown and black people and all this. And it was really no more complicated than that. Whereas... You know, our contention in the book and my contention all along has been if you are so critical of neoliberalism and the economic model to which it was associated and what it did to the country, particularly in a lot of its working class communities, how can you not think this has something to do with the appeal of Donald Trump? We don't forget in 2016 ran a more policy oriented campaign than than Hillary Clinton did. I mean, like 80 percent of his, his uh, ads were about policy stuff in a broad sense, about trade deals and betrayals by the elites and so on, whereas Hillary basically ran on how bad Donald Trump is, who an awful person he was. So um, he clearly made, you know, part of his appeal was based on on those kinds of things. So we saw the Democratic Party have a really hard time processing that in any kind of sophisticated way and trying to figure out a way, how can we get some of these voters back? Instead, it was, you know, who needs them back? <laughs> and mm -hmm. they, you know, they started to move to the left in some of the ways that I was previously alluding to. And then much to their shock, and this gets at what you were asking about, in 20, 
20 non-white working class voters started bailing out from the Democrats as well, particularly Latinos. There was about an 18 point decline in the Democrats margin among Hispanic voters between 2016 and 2020. It was even larger among working class Hispanics. So that was like not supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Here you're running against Donald Trump for the second time. Donald Trump is a racist skunk who's destroying the country and hates immigrants and Hispanics are voting. More Hispanics are voting for them, huh? Mm -hmm. But, you know, so they mm -hmm. couldn't understand that. And, you know, I, I, you know, I really processed that as an important signal of what was going on with the American electorate, that the fact that Hispanics had moved in the GOP direction in 2020, despite what everyone appeared to know about Trump, might mean that the underlying assumptions that Democrats were playing with as Hispanics are a group that's primarily motivated by the fact that the victims of this racist dystopian hell hall we call the United States. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they basically just care about the immigration issue and they care about racism. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're mostly concerned mm -hmm. with what's going on in their communities, about public safety, about working their way up, about upward mobility, about health care, about pretty concrete stuff that has to do with their ability to, to make their way in America, which they do not, in fact, think of it as a racist dystopian hellhole. So, mm -hmm. so that was, a, you know, that really made an impression on me. And I thought the data were quite compelling. We saw some continued trends in this direction, particularly among Asians in 2022. Uh, you already saw it in other places in 2022, but there was a national trend toward the GOP among Asians in 2022. So this presumption that non-whites are the province of the Democratic Party and will always vote for them at the exactly the high levels they always had turns out not to be true. And we think that mm -hmm. has a lot to do with the way the Democratic Party has evolved over time and its identification, among other things, with this cultural radicalism, which is not in the wheelhouse of a lot of working class non-whites. One of my favorite stats, Leighton, about... Uh, 2012 to 2020, for example, if you compare those two elections, Democrats improved their, their margin among white college educated voters by 16 points across the two elections. Mm -hmm. Their margin among mm -hmm. non-white working class voters between those two elections declined by 18 points. And so, I want to um, wow. paraphrase. I mean, that, that should kind of mm -hmm. uh, make us sit up and take notice, right? Something's going on here. Yeah. And I want to paraphrase what you've written about, which is that given that something like three quarters of Americans are working class or mm -hmm. or 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 lower, um, the 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 Democrats are trying to hold on to a coalition of urban non-white working class people and college educated people, which is um, essentially a minoritarian coalition. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, the precipitous drop off of white working class voters was 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 such that was so great that really you're talking about like marginal losses among non-white working class voters could have you know, it gets you closer and closer to the tipping point. Right. This could have exactly. catastrophic effects on the party. Mm -hmm. That is um, correct. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we as political observers tend to obsess over these categories, these racial categories. But am I wrong that really what we're looking at is like most people don't think of themselves as a Latino voter or a black voter or an Asian voter? They think of themselves as who they are individually in their household, unless they're pressed to, to think about themselves in terms of their ethnic group or their racial group. And so really mm -hmm. what we're looking at is just a collapse in working class support that we miss diagnosed as a collapse in white working class support just because the white working class happened for whatever reason to be sort of the leading edge of of the of a drop off of the entire multiracial working class is that, is that the right way to think about it 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, one uh, little data point on this that's interesting, just sort of crystallizes some things, is that in the 2022 election in the National House vote, Democrats carried college-educated voters as a whole by 10 points and lost the multiracial working class as a whole by 10 points. So mm -hmm. just kind of this weird inversion of how the parties now are. And I think it does reflect the fact that working class voters are working class and they have a lot of points in common uh, across mm -hmm. racial lines because of their economic position in society and what their sort of economic interests and preferences are and also their cultural output, which tends mm -hmm. to be much more conservative than among mm -hmm. college-educated voters, particularly college-educated white liberals who now thoroughly dominate the Democratic Party. Um, so that's important, and that should not be uh, overlooked. And it's again, it's kind of strange when you think about it. The historic party of the working class in the United States seems to be doing its best to ignore what working class people have in common and get away from emphasizing that and instead try to put people into racial buckets. So, so, so what happened? Was it the job offshoring? Was it the collapse of unions? Was it um, both of those and other factors as well? What are the causal? I think if we look at the causes of uh, this disaffection from the Democrats on economic grounds going back to the 70s and 80s and 90s, that is a lot of what it is, that the economic model of the United States was changing in this direction that disadvantaged you know, working class people, particularly in certain areas of the country, uh, deindustrialization and good jobs were going away in a lot of areas. Communities were becoming blighted and benighted. And I think these voters did not believe that Democrats had their back on this. And, you know, I suppose the best gloss you could put it, maybe there was nothing they could have done. But uh, I think they really were viewed as being complicit in, mm -hmm. in those transformations. And we certainly saw that in the Clinton era and the kind of policies that were adopted then in terms of deregulation, in terms of, uh, you know, all kinds of trade issues and so on, uh, you know, one could argue at the margin about what the effects of those deals were, but if the clear signal that was sent to these voters was, uh, you know, we don't have really a good plan for what to do to you, just trust us. You know, this is mm -hmm. a brave new world we're walking into. You can't stop globalization. It's like being against the tides and it'll all work out well in the end and learn how to code. And then, you know, after that, after the experience of the Clinton era, you get the China shock of China's mm -hmm. accession to the WTO. And that's, you know, that was a huge, had a huge effect on a lot of these mm -hmm. areas of the country um, who were already suffering and already weren't too happy with the Democrats. And there's been a lot of interesting work that's been done about that in terms of looking at the China shock and where it affected different areas of the country by uh, David Otter et al., uh, a group of economists at MIT and I guess Berkeley and so on. Anyway, fancy schools. Mm -hmm. um, but they did, mm -hmm. basically they're able to show that if you look at the places that uh, were dependent on trade, uh, that had something to do with China, that was affected by the increasing trade with China um, and what that did to these areas. I mean, they all moved toward the Republicans. I mean, it has a big uh -huh. effect. I mean, not only does it kill jobs, it kills Democratic votes. So, so you have this Democratic embrace of free trade neoliberalism, and then and so that's sort of starts to they sort of, sort of start to hemorrhage their working class base. Um, when does the cultural radicalism come in? Is that simultaneous with this? Does this come later? No, it comes Same later, causes, I think. Causes. I mean, mm -hmm. the Democratic Party up through, you know, you could argue at least into, you know, Obama era was, it was definitely to the left of some working class voters, but it was actually mm -hmm. on relatively secure ground in terms of how the country was overall changing in a liberal and tolerant direction on some of these issues. Um, 
and Democrats were conscious, at least somewhat conscious, of the need not to go too far uh, mm -hmm. in terms of an abrasive sort of boutique cultural radicalism. Let's keep that on the campuses. And mm -hmm. so the initial, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you remember this late, but there was actually a burst of political correctness in the early 90s that, that became quite well. a, mm -hmm. a little bit of a laughing stock after a while. The fact that it did become a laughing stock after a while just showed it was pretty different than what came after it because mm -hmm. it kind of went up and then it went down. It was almost like basically during the Clinton era as, you know, this, oh, okay, let's get realistic here. We have to deal with the country as it is. And some of this stuff just seems pretty silly and maybe it should just stay mm -hmm. on the campuses. But what we've had in the 2000s is you know, the, the hope that uh, this boutique radicalism, cultural radicalism will stay on the campuses completely turned out to be incorrect. It actually, in fact, spread out uh, first uh, gradually and then very rapidly into the overall institutions of society, particularly those that are tended to be oriented toward the left. So you see essentially, you know, a takeover by a sort of unapologetically radical view on cultural issues around race, gender, immigration, and so on, uh, taking place all throughout foundations, activist groups, advocacy groups, the infrastructure of the Democratic Party, and a lot of media, frankly, I mean, which really, mm -hmm. you know, becomes staffed up with these liberal white college graduates and uh, who basically have this perspective that to some extent they learn in the campuses, but uh, they obviously feel committed to. And you had the rise of a kind of culture and a bubble within which a lot of these people operate. Well, either you, you believe this stuff or if you don't believe this stuff, you shut up about it. So mm -hmm. uh, and that, of course, that just produces more acquiescence over time. Mm -hmm. And then you get these corporate leaders and these institutional leaders basically caving in to this sort of thing. And then that. You know, we've seen that in the Democratic Party as well, that, you know, politicians who formerly were pretty moderate are actually pretty committed uh, to mm -hmm. some of these boutique stances. I mean, Joe Biden's a good example, right? Um, he just gave a speech uh, around Pride Month or whatever that was absolutely unapologetic and no compromise whatsoever on how all of this stuff that's going on in the country about, you know, quotes, LGBTQ plus, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. These are just hateful bigots. There are, no, mm -hmm. there are no real questions here about, you know, uh, drugs and gender and surgery for minors. There are no real questions about what books should be in elementary school libraries. It's all it's all yeah. you know, just a reflection of how awful these people are and how they are. I mean, it's I, I just wrote about this said, today. Yeah, OK, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. I, I just I just wrote today about how, you know, these these, these parents in, in Glendale, you know, these are like Armenians um, in L.A. You know, I, I guarantee you, having spent lived in L.A. for a long time in the east side, no less of L.A., Mm -hmm. That um, that that these parents are 80, 90 percent Democratic voters, I guarantee you. And they were attacked by the not just the governor, but their own representative, Adam Schiff, who represents about half of of of, uh, of Glendale, their own constituents as being these hateful right. bigots. Mm -hmm. It's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. And, and it really is symptomatic of how the party has changed, where back in the uh, Obama years. There was some sense that the party needed to go cautiously on some of these issues mm -hmm. and be attentive to what sort of normie voters thought <laughs> and working mm -hmm. class voters thought. And that seems to have gone out the window. And now I think a lot of these Democratic representatives and other players, they're much more responsive to what people think on Twitter or what people, young people think in the organization or what other people in the party think. And the idea seems to be we can get away with this. We can basically leverage ourselves off of how bad everybody thinks Trump is, plus count mm -hmm. on the resolute support 
of the you know sort of rising college educated population to support us uh, and everything will turn out fine. But in the meantime, it means that in effect they they treat each and every one of these issues as what I call the Fox News fallacy. If the Democrats mm -hmm. are being attacked for being too far to the left in any given cultural issue, then that simply reflects the fact that these are Fox News talking points. There's nothing to them. Uh, and uh, we should just deny, deny, deny that there's anything going on there, attack, attack, attack. And basically compromise is not on, on the table. We're not, we're not in the business of trying to compromise on these morally freighted issues. You know, mm -hmm. because it's all lies and mis mis and disinformation on the other side. And you know all about so, that link. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so mm -hmm. I think it, it's quite remarkable that, you know, and I think you make an important point about these particular people in Glendale being fundamentally Democratic leaning. I think there's a real a remarkable tendency at this point to dismiss the views of anyone who's on the wrong side of these issues, even if, in fact, they are your constituents, even in fact, they're loyal Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's pretty strange. Usually parties try to respond to the, the, the discomfort that their voters mm -hmm. might feel about some particular move. You might at least try to offer a compromise. Mm -hmm. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, compromise just doesn't seem to be in the lexicon these days for a lot mm -hmm. of Democrats, I'm afraid to say. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.